The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. All right, uh, we're going to be in Philippians 2, chapter 1. I'm going to read this passage through, um, and then we are going to dig into what God has uh, for us today. So Philippians 2, chapter 1, uh, sorry, verse 1 through to 11, it says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. It's the name we just sung about. It's Jesus, right? So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, if you remember, um, we've been in this book of Philippians for a few weeks now, but Paul is um, an apostle and he's in jail and he's writing back to a church in which he started maybe 10 years ago and he's, he's exhorting them um, and encouraging them, particularly as his own example. Um, and so as we've been reading, we've been seeing that he is able to um, have incredible joy despite the fact that he is in prison, tied 24 hours a day, chained to guards, no privacy, no comfort, nothing that our world or culture would say, this is what you need in life to be experiencing joy. And yet as we read it, he is so filled with joy. And last week we looked at that one of the main reasons he's filled with joy is because he has this, this definition of life which is very, very different to our cultures, which is um, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. I remembered it. I didn't this week, during the week, at a devotion at a school, and so I had a particular member of our church family who was in that devotion who helped me. Um, and it's, it's, this, it's this idea that your definition of life determines your experience of life. And so because he looks through this lens... That what matters ultimately in this world is knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. He can celebrate no matter what happens to him, if that's happening. And now what he's doing, he's now going to start to go beyond that and say, Hey, now, now church, I want you to start thinking how you're living. I, I want you to start considering what it is that you think, how you think. Have you ever traveled to a different country? Before and they have completely different values. So it's not just like us leaving Australia and going to New Zealand, where we're, we're pretty similar. We're both in the West, similar values, similar cultures. Um, a number of years ago, actually, before we had children, my wife and I, we went to Thailand. And uh, I had this big dream of going to Bali, reading a whole lot of books and sitting on a beach. And my wife was like, why would we do that? How boring. Let's trek through a jungle with nothing but a backpack and a little bit of water. No change of clothes, and then let's just stay with a different tribe each day. You know, let's just do this thing. Um, and it was, 
it was like scary for me because she's really adventurous and I'm not. And uh, what, what I found was you would go and you would meet these, these people and you would stay with these tribes and they have a completely different life to you. They see the world completely different. And so as we'd get to each tribe, what we started to realize was, ah, oh, when you grow up in this part of the world, you don't have any aspirations to do anything that you want to do. You have a job that is going to be your job for your whole life, and somebody's going to give that to you. And, and these people who are like, um, they're, they're kind of like, okay, my job is just to plow the fields. And they do that for their whole adult life. We, we met some people who all their job was to look after the elephants. That's it. There's no other aspiration in life. And, and, and they live completely differently because of the context, because of the world in which they live, because of the culture in which they live. There are certain men whose job is just to, they just go in the afternoon or early hours in the morning and you can go with them if you want and all their job is to hunt, get some food, bring it back. That's it. That's all they do. And it was like, wow, this is really different. You guys don't want to go to uni? You don't want to kind of have your own dreams and thoughts? It's like, that doesn't exist. Well, this is kind of what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, listen, we live in this world. We live in this, this culture, but we don't get our cues from culture. We live according to a different kingdom. We are now citizens of heaven. That's what he said last week. We're citizens of heaven. So in light of what it means to be made a son, a daughter, a servant of this new kingdom, we live in a different way. We don't live like the kingdom of this world. We live like citizens of heaven. So what Paul does is Paul wants to say to this church, so church, we don't live self-serving like the culture around us does. We see the world through the lens of being humble people. And so he calls the church, you see this uh, in, in verse 1, he calls them to this life of humility. So he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. This morning, I provided some coffees for some of our staff and I, I had a few extra coffees. And so as we moved into our morning rally, uh, I said, hey, there's a couple of extra flat whites out there for anyone who wants it. And, and there were certain people, I won't mention their names, um, but they went, yes, me. And they went and got the coffee for themselves. Now, this is just out of humor and fun, so don't take this seriously if you're new. Uh, but that was selfish ambition and conceit. <laughs> I said to them, I would get them this morning. So I said, so do nothing out of selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Think about the other person who would have liked the flat white. <laughs> Let each of you not uh, look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of the others. Now question, why does he have to ask the church, why does he have to tell them to do this? What do you reckon? Could it be because they're not doing it? See, I don't have to ask my kids to do chores around the house if they've already been done. So in other words, this, this church is struggling with this. And you're going to see this in the coming weeks, that there is disagreements in the church. There's, there's conflict within the church. And so, so Paul wants to write to them and say, hey, hey, we, we, don't, we don't deal with this sort of stuff from the way that culture does. We deal with this stuff from the way that Christ does. So he says, this is how we think. 
We, we make the good of others the focus of our lives. We consider the interests of others. We think about others. What does it mean to count others more significant? It means that you account others as worthy of your encouragement. It means that you will serve others. You will think about what others want, what others need. One great writer said, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is simply thinking of yourself less. Is this not the opposite of our culture? Today I'm preaching from an iPad, a me pad. I have an iPhone, a me phone. I have an iLife, to me life. And all of our culture is saying, serve self, work for self, consider self, love self, worship self, put self as the highest value of your world. Your autonomy matters, your rights matters, your privileges matters. That's what's most important. You are most important. And Paul is like, that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. That's not how citizens of heaven, that's not the lens through which they live. And so he says, church, be humble. And it's important to note that humble is not a quiet spirit and pride a loud spirit. Like humility is not something that is Asian and pride is something that's American. Right? As soon as I think of, of pride, I have a, a picture of like what that looks like, the arrogant, you know, and it's like, it's not a, it's those, you, you can be loud, you can have volume, you can be confident in yourself and still be a humble person. In other words, it's not a disposition of your personality so much. It's the way in which you think. And so he goes on and says, not only am I going to call you to humility, I want to give you an example of it. And so he says, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves. Think this way, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So this acts now as, as a bridge. He's, he's going to sort of show, like, what does humility look like? What does it look like to live a humble life? What does humility really look like? And then Paul launches into this next passage. Now, for some of you, um, this passage, uh, you've heard it a million times. And, and you know it well, and you love it, it's great. For me, this is one of the first things that I read that actually convinced me that the Bible was trustworthy and accurate. So as I was exploring faith, I believed that there was a God. I started to believe that Jesus was potentially who he was saying to be, but how did I know that I could trust, trust this book? And there are two particular passages that were really powerful for me. One is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul quotes a creed. So Paul is writing after Jesus, and he's writing about Jesus, but he also inserts into his writing a historical creed. It's known as the first creed that the early church ever had. And so it's from 1 Corinthians 15, and he talks about the fact that Jesus died and then three days later, he rose again. And this is historical creed, meaning that it wasn't something written 30 years post-Jesus, but it was actually in circulation years and years and years and years before, which means there hasn't been time for myth to develop. The eyewitness generation are still around who are able to say, no, 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 he wasn't. 
And so as you see people like Luke, Luke writes his account and he's like, hey, I'm going I'm to write an orderly account to you, O Theophilus, so that you can know this Jesus of whom we speak. And this here is another one that really impacted me. This is actually a historical hymn. This was a song or a poem that had been recited and spoken. And it was in formulation long before Paul even writes this letter. And for me, that was hugely important because I'm like, wow, this is getting, the timeline is getting super, super close. See, myths happen. False religions happen multiple generations over time. Because the previous generation isn't there to actually say what they saw or what they heard. The biblical account is people who have been there, who have seen Jesus, who have watched him. So Luke has interviewed and investigated 500 different people's accounts and then writes it. And so, so too with this, Paul is writing a a poem, a hymn that has been a part of the Christian faith. This is uh, what... Hadley Mill says, he says, We have here a chain of assertions about our Lord Jesus Christ made within some 30 years of his death at Jerusalem. Made in the open day of public Christian intercourse. It's public. People can can speak about it. People can say what they have seen, what they have not seen. And made not in the least in the manner of controversy. In other words, he's assuming that people know this to be true. And made not in the least manner of controversy, of assertions against difficulties and denials, but in the tone of a settled, common, and most living certainty. These assertions give us, on the one hand, the fullest possible assurance that he is a man, man in nature, in circumstance and experience, and particularly in the sphere of relationship to God the Father. But they also assure us in precisely the same tone and in the same way, which is equally vital to the argument in hand that he is as genuinely divine as he is genuinely human. So if you go read the early historical creeds of our Christian faith, they constantly come back to this. Jesus is the God-man. He is equally fully divine and fully human. And there is something hugely important to the Christian faith that we must hold on to this. Now, I know you didn't come here this morning looking for a theological lecture. (laughs) But if we miss this, we potentially worship a different God. So we must get this right. Who is Jesus? And this is what this creed is showing us is who is Jesus and how does he live? But then also, Paul isn't just using it to kind of prove who Jesus is because he's assuming it. He's actually using this to show people that if you believe in this Jesus, live like this Jesus. Because if this is true of our Lord and our Savior and our God, then it should be true of those of us who have received His grace by faith and now live in accordance with His will. You meet the disciples in the Gospels and they're constantly having arguments about, well, who's greater? Who will be closest to Jesus in heaven? Who will be on the right-hand side of the Father? In fact, at one time, two of the disciples get mum involved. And the rest of the disciples are a little bit ticked because mum's come to the office to kind of back their, hey, if you were just, excuse me, Mr. Principal, uh, my son is perfect and has done nothing wrong. He's never said a bad word. He doesn't lie. He's amazing. And if you could just affirm that in front of everyone, that'd be great, right? It's mummy, mummy's there, right? And you're like, oh my gosh. 
And Jesus keeps coming back to these, these men who seek greatness and says, greatness is not found in someone who climbs up, but is someone who lays down. The first will be last, but the last, those who recount the thoughts, the concerns of others more highly than their own, they're the ones who are great. And so what Jesus says, we live according to a different kingdom. This is an upside-down kingdom. This is, this is different. And so we see this in this hymn, three things about Jesus that I think are really important. Number one, he thinks of others. And Paul wants to say, Jesus thinks of others? Be like Jesus. Think of others. So verse 6 says, though, who, though he was in the form of God, this word form, like when we think of form, we, we tend to think of this, this outward appearance. But in the Greek, it's morphe, which means essence, nature. It speaks to the qualities that make something what it is. So though Jesus was in the very essence, in the very nature, God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Grasp means held on to tightly, to snatch at, to, to, to hold on to almost with strength. This is not what Jesus did. Jesus was by very nature God, but he didn't cling. He didn't sneeze. Uh, sneeze. He didn't seize. <laughs> Maybe he sneezed on earth. I don't know. Uh, he didn't take hold of this for his own personal advantage. Equality with God is something that is rightfully his. For he is in the very essence and the very nature God. Jesus had the right to point to all of us and say, you will worship me. He had that right. He had the right to say, I made you do what I say. Like some of your parents may do from occasion, from time to time. Hey, who's in charge? This is not your home. It's my home. I worked for it. I paid for it. Clean it. Put your clothes away. Put those shoes on. I bought those shoes. Put them on. Why does Jesus not do this? Because Jesus isn't thinking of himself. Jesus is thinking of you and me. Which is a crazy thought. That the one who is God transcendent, timeless, uncreated, holy and perfect, thinks of me and you. Unholy, created, temporal, broken me and you. He serves others, right? So it goes on to say, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant born in the likeness of Men, this, this word empty means to, to pour out. Now question, what did he empty himself of? Uh, my church background was charismatic. And in the charismatic move, uh, there have been lots of good things that the charismatics have sought to, to uh, experience and go after. Um, and there was a, a sense in within, within the charismatic move where they felt like, hey, we need, to, we need to not neglect the Holy Spirit. Because it seems to be God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Bible. 
Um, and so there's this sense in which the charismatic move was like, hey, there's a, there's a spirit of God here that, that seems to be neglected. And they had a desire to see spiritual gifts and miracles and things come uh, back into the church, I would say. Um, and, and often what happens in any sort of move, we sometimes overswing. Have you ever overswung in your thoughts? Uh, for me, because I was in the charismatic move, I actually overswung the other way, uh, where I was going, yeah, it is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Bible. Because it's like, the Bible doesn't get too awkward, and then you read it like, oh yeah, it gets a little bit awky. <laughs> um, and so what actually happened in the late 1800s was the charismatic move, uh, I believe, made an error with how they interpreted this particular passage. So what, what the charismatic move was, was trying to say is like, hey, the Holy Spirit, He exists, He's really powerful, He moves. And then they use this particular passage to say, and, and like you can, be, you can be empowered by the Spirit, the Spirit can use you, you can pray for people and see things. Uh, and they use this to kind of say, and see, this is kind of how Jesus lived, that Jesus emptied Himself of His divine attributes. And when He came to earth, He came as a man, like as a human, like me and you. And he was only filled with, led by the Holy Spirit. And so everything he did was by the power of the Spirit. And there is some sense in which, yes, we see that in the, in the Scriptures, that Jesus has the Holy Spirit with him. But as soon as you say that Jesus emptied himself of his divine attributes, that means he's no longer God. Which means if he goes to the cross and dies for the sins of the world, he can only go there as a man. And this is the beautiful thing of this tension of Jesus being the God-man, is Jesus dies for the sins of the world. Right? He has to be both divine and human to do that. He needs to be the one that saves us, forgives us as God, but he needs to be one like us who can take on the sins of the world and have the judgment of God put on him as a man. And so there is a sense in which the charismatic move has done some great things. Uh, we consider many of them our brothers and sisters. I would say some are not, but there are many that we would say are our brothers and sisters. Um, and as conservative types, we don't want to go and overswing and go, yeah, that's a little freaky. We're scared of that. Uh, we don't want to sing too loudly. Let's not, let's not get too excited about Jesus. Let's just stay hands down. Just be careful now. Like, no, no, we want to say, hey, listen, we love God. And God is Father, Son, and Spirit. We love the Holy Spirit. We appreciate the Spirit. We are excited people about God. We're filled with joy, and we will express things. So I put up my hands. I do a little bit of dancing occasionally, like, mm, a bit of that. And my wife's a little bit like, mm, mm. Calm down, Kylum. And so we're different, and we allow each other to express how we feel about God in our own personalities. This theology was, was turned as kenosis. And it's the idea that God emptied himself of his divine attributes. And that's just not what this passage is saying. What does it say he emptied himself of? Can you read it? It doesn't, right? It just says he emptied himself. It doesn't give us what. Because the next verse is the lead on and it's going to show us what he actually did. What does it mean? So listen to how the NRV translates this. Again, I know you weren't, getting a theolog you weren't coming in for a theological thing, but you need it. Okay, verse 6. Uh, the NRV says, Who being in the very nature of God did not count, uh, consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. The New Living says, He gave up his divine privileges. 
The King James Version says he made himself of no reputation. So it's not that God, when he becomes human, gives up his divineness, gives up his godness and is now purely man on earth. No, he is always fully God, always fully human. What it means is that God did not hold on to this in his divine rights and his divine privileges to advantage himself. Rather, he gives up his right and privilege to come and serve. How did he empty himself? He made himself nothing. He said, I'm God, but I will become human. That's insane to think that God would do that. Muslims cannot worship Christ because they cannot see how God could become human. Mormons are happy to allow Christ to be this this prefiguring. So if you want to understand Mormonism, Mormonism is as, as we are, he once was. And as he is, we will one day become. So you, 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 you are human, but one day you will be like him and be a God. And the Bible says, no, there is one God. The rest of us are human. And there is a distinction. And so, yes, we are to look at Jesus and his example. Yes, there are scriptures that show us that in his humanity, he is relying on the spirit of God. But also, if you read the New Testament, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how, after how many miracles does he do, do people go, wow, he's an incredible man? No, that's not what they do. They see the miracles and they keep going, he is the son of God. Who can do this? Who can speak like this other than the God man? And so they know that it's not just his humanity that they're seeing. They are seeing the one who is the promised God man that would come, the Messiah, the son of God. And that's really important that we don't lose that. And so how does he empty himself? He takes on the form of a servant. What does the word servant mean? It's doulos. Do you know what doulos means? One who has no privileges and rights. So he gives up the privileges and rights of being God, in that sense. And he comes down, he takes on human flesh, he becomes a servant, and he says, I'm not here to be served as God. As God, I come to serve you. Mind-blowing. It feels, feels wrong to talk of God like that, hey? That God would serve me? Like, no, no, I should serve him. As God, he didn't cling with force to his divine rights and privileges. Rather, he gave those up. And instead of demanding people serve him as king, as king, he comes and serves. It says that he was born in the likeness of men. If God can do this from a place of humility, we can serve brothers and sisters. Yeah, well, I want this. I think this. I deserve this. Do we not live in a culture which is obsessed with their rights? Yeah? That's our culture. That's always going to be a culture that does not follow Jesus. Those who follow Jesus go, he gives up his rights and his privileges. So do I. How can I serve? This is not about me. I'm thinking about you. What do you need? Wouldn't it be great to have leaders in the political world, with a mindset like that? Wouldn't it be nice to have CEOs of companies and corporations with mindsets like this? 
Wouldn't you love to work for a company where all the leadership at the top thought like this? My job is not to get you to serve me. My job is to serve you. How can I help you? And then lastly, he sacrifices for others. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what transformed the Christian community, is they had a big view of God. And they met Jesus. And they were blown away that God would come, not just add humanity to his divinity, but he would die on a cross as a criminal, taking on the guilt of the world. It blew their minds as they thought about this God, this transcendent, this holy, this this being who is some otherly being that is not like us, would come and then love us, think of us, serve us, and sacrifice his love for us. It blew their minds. So much so that you see in the early historical record that Christians, when there were not just pandemics, but when there was like like absolute epidemics going on in Rome, that rather than fleeing Rome, where they could stay healthy and not catch the disease, they would literally go in and serve those who had the disease of which they knew that they would catch and they would love them. And if you read the Roman record, the Romans were like, who does this? And Christians go, Christ does, and we are his. And Rome starts to get turned upside down once again because Christians are like, we're not here for ourselves, we're here to love and serve like Jesus Christ. And this is the point of this passage, the point of the passage, even in many ways, whilst it has that human divine aspect to it, the point of it is to say, church, be like Jesus, follow in his example that Jesus as God with all the rights and privileges that belong to him in humanity did not cling on to those rights and privileges. Rather, he willingly relinquished them in order to serve us. And he didn't just come to us, he became one of us. He didn't just become one of us, he died for us so that we could be made right with God. The rich became poor so that the poor might become rich. He who was righteous and sinless and knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. When you think about this God and what he has done for you, it should transform your heart to live that. Humility. That's why he says, have this mind in you, the mind of Christ. Don't follow the culture. And then it goes on and says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. In other words, we don't just worship God because He is God. We worship God because He is the God-man. That He saved us. He died for us. And He brought us back into a relationship with God the Father. Is this crazy? I don't know how you feel, but there are certain people who I struggle to hang out with. Yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting some nods on that. A few of you woke up, you're like, yeah, that's right, yeah, those people. Um, whenever I stop and think about why I struggle to hang out with those people, it always comes down to the same thing. I think I'm better than those people. I 
I don't have patience for those people. Those people are annoying. I'm getting lots of nods. The gap between me and those people is so much closer than the gap between God and me. And the Bible tells me that Jesus doesn't just put up with me, but that he delights in me. I know me. My wife puts up with me. (laughs) My children have to put up with me. You have to put up with me. My God doesn't put up with me. He delights in me. He loves me. He has come to this earth to love and serve me. That humbles me. It's like, I don't deserve that. No, we don't, but we get it. And so now, as a new people, under a new king, in a new citizenship, live. This is what Paul's saying, live like that. And that's why he gets worshipped, because he is not like any polytheistic pagan god they've ever heard of. They all have to come to him and work their way to him and appease him. And he's saying, no, that's not how this god works. This god came to you. And he loved you and he served you. And they go, wow. And what does it lead to? Worship. We sing. Like, yes, there is only one name that we sing. Yahweh. Jesus Christ, Saviour, Lord. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.